I'm James Jolly and I'm thrilled to be sitting down and chatting with some of my musical heroes. Welcome to this episode of Music Makers, a series in which we meet some of the most inspiring and charismatic musicians on the planet. This episode's guest is a music maker who combines a beautiful voice and deep powers of expression with something more. The mezzo-soprano Joyce DiDonato has a powerful social conscience which she pursues both on stage and off. I'm looking forward to exploring what drives her and what makes her one of the most generous artists of our day. Be nice, James Jolly. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. <laughs> For somebody who spends their life traveling the world, there's one certainty for the last few years is if you wake up and say, it's Strasbourg, it's got to be Berlioz. It has got to be Berlioz. And also if Berlioz is on my calendar, I think I must be going to Strasbourg. <laughs> it works equally. And it's our third project here, but it feels as if we've been doing this for a long time. And it sounds a little bit um, uh, sort of Pollyanna, but we have created a real family here. Not only with the orchestra, with the singers, of course with Maestro Nelson, John, beloved John, but also with the audience. And it's become a real um, event, and I've missed it the last two years, so it was so good to be back. Now, how, did it, how did it all start? I mean, assume John Nelson is the kind of the pivotal figure in all this. I mean, you go back a long way, don't you? I go back, I think we just spoke about this last night. It must have, I'm never good with dates, but I want to say 2004 or five in Notre Dame, and I did Bach B minor mass with him. But I worked with him before, and it was in 99, 1999, and I was covering Ruggiero for the Chicago Lyric Opera, Lyric Opera of Chicago, and I was, it was the um, Robert Carson Alcina with Renee with Natalie with Rockwell Blake and I was covering Jennifer Larmore and John was conducting and it was a spectacular everything the cast the show everything and lovely Jennifer got sick one day and I had to fill in for rehearsal and it was the day they were doing and I just felt like I was, I had just won the lottery. And that was my first time I actually worked with John. But the first time we officially performed, I believe was the Bach B minor. Or it might have been Les Nuits d'été in Paris. We also did that, I'm not sure which came first. Well, that takes us nicely back to Berlioz, Berlioz as well. So, but he's encouraged you into some, I mean, you know, Didon in, in the Trojans. I mean, that was a huge undertaking. And I mean, you know, and an amazing result for everybody. I mean, you know, it was Gramophone's Recording of the Year. It had incredible reviews. I mean, it really was a sort of milestone. It was, that was a thousand percent the vision, the dream, the manifestation of John. And I think he, for, of course, his association with that piece is historic and long known, but I think for a long time he had been envisioning in his head what it would be like when he recorded it. And it just really felt like it was a moment of, of all the right elements coming together at the right time. For example, if he had proposed this to me five years earlier, uh, I'm not sure I would have been ready for it. Vocally, maybe, but I don't think artistically. 
and as a performer. And it was something really, really incredibly special. And the, at that time, Michael Spires was, all, I don't want to say an unknown entity. He was but certainly put him no, on the map. But he put him on the map. And he was just coming up. And this is the genius of somebody like John, that he has the vision and he can see that's my innie. And we were so well matched, um, which is paramount in that piece. But it went to every single role. It went to the chorus. And I will never forget being on stage and feeling the 25th viola and the 18th harp and the 300th violin, no matter where they were positioned on the stage, it felt that everybody was telling the same story and invested. And that is remarkable. And that's John. And you've since been back for Marguerite in, in Damnation de Faust. And then last night, or the last two nights, Juliet in Romeo Juliet, a rather smaller role than Didion. <laughs> but it's the crazy thing with Berlioz, even if it's six minutes of music, you feel like you've touched a slice of heaven. And you feel like you've touched them. Um, with Berlioz, it's so interesting. I didn't know this piece, and uh, you know, I studied my part well, which comes quite at the very beginning. But I purposefully didn't listen to anything else until the dress rehearsal. And I sat in the theater and listened to the entirety of the piece once I was off stage. And so I wanted to discover it live and with John on the podium. And you sit there and you just feel like you've entered the inner workings of not a maniac, but somebody who is in touch with things that the normal human being is not in touch with. And it was such a palpable and arresting ah, experience to, to meet something thunderous and earth shattering like that for the first time. You feel so intimately connected to the heart and mind of Berlioz, especially when it's led by John, who understands it so deeply. And so it, it has just been earth shattering for me, each one of the experiences doing these pieces. Because as, as, as I was listening last night, I just thought th there couldn't be a, a more perfect piece for a lot of people to return after the pandemic than this, because it is so outrageously extravagant. You know, three soloists who don't have a huge amount to do, two choruses, and you walk into the hall, six harps, six harps. and all those timpani at the back, and you just think, as is fabulous, you know, a chorus shipped in from <laughs> Portugal, you know, yeah. let's just go for broke, you know. Yeah. And it just, it just, it was sort of overwhelmingly kind of extravagant and rich, and you just thought, yes, we need this. Absolutely, and it is the, of course, we're happy to share it. I know we broadcast it on Medici, it will be on Mezzo as well. Um, but it is one of those things that if you experience it live and you're surrounded in 3D by it, by it being created in that moment, you don't forget an experience like that. You kind of have to see the layout just to get, uh, get a sort of grasp of the, you know, the opulence of it all. True, it's true. The wonderful thing for me with this is that, you know, the role of Marguerite, the role of Didon, they're so technically challenging and they are so dramatically <gasps> Mm, encompassing. And also, just before we did these concerts, John and I were recording La Mort de Cléopâtre, which will also come out as well, which is just like being shot out of a cannon. Um, but the really thrilling part of, of this little bijou, this jewel from the piece that I, I sing, the premier transport, is it is so soft and it is so intimate and, and simple 
deeply beautiful, not hugely technically challenging, so I don't have to, you know, gear myself up te technically too much. But you feel like it's this precious jewel, as the text even speaks about, and then it's gone. And I remember thinking, it's like, but I want more. I wish there was more of this. Why isn't there more of this in the piece? And I was listening to the dress rehearsal and I realized there couldn't be because it's the perfect example of what the love of Romeo and Juliet is. It's precious, it's a jewel, it's perfect, and it's gone. So I thought he, he knew what he was doing by bringing that color in right at the start. I mean, as a composer, I mean, he's, he's given the, the mezzo voice such a rich repertoire. I mean, I can't really think of anyone else kind of approaching it in the sort of breadth. Well, it's not Puccini, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, Handel did us pretty Handel, well, Handel I have to did, say. absolutely. Did pretty well by us. Rossini, not so bad too, but it, there's, I've always jokingly said that Berlioz is the mezzo's Puccini because we get to actually do these sweeping long lines and ache and it's so dramatic and it's so lyrical and it's so rewarding to sing. Um, and it really is, it, it feels like a gift. Mm -hmm. and, and I, having been able to do all of these, especially with John, I just know that it has made me a richer performer, a better musician, um, yeah, and a better singer, I think. I mean, when I look at, you know, look at your, your career, I mean, the la in the last few years, it seems you've sort of established, you know, very close working relationships with, and funny enough, quite a lot of conductors who also play the piano or play a keyboard. I mean, oh, you know, true. I'm sort of thinking of Yannick Nézé-Séguin, Tony Papano, Maxime Melianichev. I'm sure there are others. I mean, is that is that just pure happenstance? Because I mean, you know, with all of them, you you you've quite or most of them, you've performed. You know, obviously them as conductor, but also as them as I hate the word accompanist, piano partner. It's, uh, I, I, it has not been intentional, but maybe it's been a sort of organic um, chemistry. So fortunate to have those kinds of experiences and all of those pianists, oh, the conductors, but they started as pianists, they worked so well with singers. So there's such an affinity for the scope and the power of the voice, the needs of the voice and a love for singers. Not every conductor, I think, shares a real love of singers. Um, and I suppose I haven't gravitated to those conductors. But interestingly enough, in a conversation with Dame Janet Baker, I remember she asked me, she said, have you done many recitals with a conductor at the keyboard? And at that point, I hadn't. And she said, do search that out because it's not a matter of, of being better or worse, it's just a different quality of having a conductor sit at the piano, and I certainly have experienced that with Tony. Uh, and I think surprisingly, I think he would say this, with Yannick as well, because our Winterreise at Carnegie was sort of his big debut once he's been established as as fantastic conductor around the world, the world had, hadn't really seen him yet as a pianist. And I think he hadn't really explored that or considered that too much. And once that door opened, which I'm really glad it did, um, I think it's, it's gonna bring a lot to his career as well mm. and his satisfaction as a musician. Yes, I remember years and years ago, a million years ago, interviewing Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and she told me about this occasion where she was invited at Salzburg to perform a Wolf 
leader recital and she hadn't got a pianist. And then she said, you know, it, the word got out and Furtwängler came up to her sort of very shyly and said, you know, have you got a pianist? And she said, no, I haven't. She said, would you, you know, would you be happy if I played the piano? Which was, you know, and she just said, <laughs> and she said she walked past his house, you know, for weeks after and she could hear him feverishly rehearsing. That's spectacular. I did um, a Winterreise as well with Maxime, and I'll never forget this. We had performed it once on very limited rehearsal, and it was his first Winterreise, and it was a little, uh, you know, I wouldn't say either of us thought it was a referential performance. It was very good, but not referential. And then we were asked to do it for um, some dear friends of ours in sort of a, a private um, situation for about 40 people. and he was doing one of these things that he does, which is f I have to be in, you know, in Fiji, but I'll fly overnight on da, da, da. And he does, I mean, he's never in Fiji, but um, Scotland or something. And he does these crazy travel things and there's nobody on the planet that can pull it off other than Maxime. But he said, I'll be there in plenty of time for the rehearsal. Fantastic, great, no problem. We'll run, run it through and then we'll be ready for the night. His flight was delayed and he showed up about 20 minutes before we were supposed to start and we didn't even have time to look at it. And we'd only gone through the piece twice before, once in rehearsal and once in performance. And that was about a year beforehand. And I was thinking, well, it's a good thing this is a private thing because, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was an hour and 10 minutes of pure bliss. And I think it's what rarely happens in a classical music situation in that you're so attentive to each other and you trust each other. Because now Maxime and I understand each other so well musically and as performers. And we couldn't decide on anything ahead of time. We couldn't get a game plan or couldn't talk about it. It was just music. And it just went to a different level. It was really thrilling. And that is the confidence of somebody who is in charge of making music, usually on a podium. Uh, with Maxime, it's usually at a harpsichord. Um, and the trust established between musicians to create something spontaneously in the moment. And I think those are, those are magical moments that can happen with um, with conductors. Do you think that's something, you know, the spontaneity element, you know, the, of, of, of making music without three years' notice? I mean, that seems to have something, you know, the pandemic has forced a lot of people just to make music on the, on the fly, as it were. I mean, did, did it affect you in that way? I mean, is it something you actually like the idea of, rather than saying, oh, I'm going to be doing Schöne Müllerin in, you know, 2026. Or well, I would need about that much time to prepare <laughs> it. So that for that, I would want to know. You know, the thing, I think the thing that frustrated me the most with the pandemic was it became about music assembly. And, you know, I remember I had the opportunity to do something for the Financial Times actually with Yo-Yo Ma. And this was at the start of the pandemic. And we'd never performed together. And of course, that's a that's a holy grail moment for a musician to be able to make music with him. And I was so excited and he was so generous in, in figuring out how to do this. And the only way was for him to record it and me to listen to him and sing, my, record myself over the tape. And I was sitting here with the, his playing in my ear on the one hand in ecstasy 
And then I felt like I wanted to cry at the same time because I said, this isn't the way to do it. Because it's not about creation, it's just sort of assembly. And I understand, of course I understand the, the where that was born from and the necessity of mm. that. And I think, you know, some wonderful things were created in that time as well. But for me and my temperament, I just thought, mm, that's not that's not where the blood flows for me. And I think there were elements of let's not take it so seriously and work for perfection, but let's just roll up our sleeves and get in the same room and do something vibrant and that's alive. And I think it's um, unleashed something of a kind of freedom, at least for myself, that I, I don't have time to waste. <laughs> I don't want to waste my time and I want to do things that when people come in to the theater, they're going to know that they're going to get all of me, that they're going to from, and I want people around me that are on that same wavelength, that they're going to get something they cannot get in their living room or through their little screen and compressed sound. I want it to be alive and I want it to be raucous and amazing and refined and beautiful and exceptional and perfect but raw and um, real, alive. Yeah, I'm more, uh, I'm more motivated than ever for that experience. I, I promise not to, turn, to talk about turning the clock back decades. I want to just turn the clock back to earlier this year when you were in London performing Theodora in that extraordinary Katie Mitchell mm. production, which was incredible. And it, it was just, it was a sort of pandemic, pandemic opera, oh, post-pandemic or however post we think it is, opera for a lot of us. It was the first time a lot of us had been back in the opera house. Mm. It was wonderful. But I don't want to talk about that. I want about the talk about the days you weren't performing because you would one day found you out in the suburbs of London at a primary school on your hands and knees planting seeds with primary school children. I mean, what motivates you to do something? I mean, where does that come from? Because you could quite easily, you know, do what divas do when they're not, you know, performing. I don't know what that is. You know, have a facial, shopping. go shopping, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, planting plants with school kids. What motivates me? I mean, you know, James, it is, I, I just, there's a lot to talk about with that. I have, I've just witnessed firsthand, and I say this and I, it's, I, I don't mean it as like a catchphrase, but the transformative power of music in people's lives. And it's not a joke. And it's not um, just glitter. It changes hearts and it comforts people. And I think I have a greater understanding of that after the pandemic. And I don't think we're gonna really comprehend it until for some time, the loneliness and the trauma that people went through um, during that time. And what a source of comfort music was. And that sounds very lighthearted and, oh, it's very comforting. No, mm. that's soul surviving. And I don't know how many things right now in the modern world really bring true comfort. We have a lot of distraction. We have a lot of um, numbing. We have a lot of fog 
that at least quiets things down for a little bit. But real comfort, um, it doesn't come from that many places. I think people found it in nature. I think people found it in music. Um, in both those instances, there's nothing between you and it. No. You know, it's pure. It, that is it. It's just the communication, isn't it? Music, and it's walking yours. in nature. Yeah. And it's something that you can participate in by listening, by receiving, by planting. And I, I sometimes am at odds, I think, with the industry um, of where we are that it's, I think we haven't always owned as a classical industry. I don't think we've always owned the heart medicinal quality of music. There are some people that lean into that um, and there's other people that do other things, which is, is fine. I mean, I wouldn't ever, ever require every artist to, to prescribe only in this way. I think we have to follow, artists have to follow what they are and what they respond to, what they're called to. But in my case, I've seen it and I've seen it change people's lives and save people's lives. People that are on the brink, music pulls them back from it. And that's not hyperbole, it's real. And I look at kids today and I see they have very little, well, many of the outlets for expression and process to find out who they are have been taken away. And one of the main things is the arts to where they can express what they're feeling, what they don't understand, what they're scared about, what they're happy about, what they're angry about. And if human beings are not given an outlet to express all these things that are raging inside or causing confusion, they're gonna find other outlets. And many times those are violent. I mean, in the States we have horrendous uh, earth-shattering examples of that. But it also can be violence against another, through words, it can be violence against themselves in different ways. Um, and I just think we're living in a moment in the world, a truly historical moment, where it's all hands on deck. And I wanna be part of the, the discussion that is bringing harmony, balance, calmness, unity, tranquility, back. All of these things that we find in music, in particular in the classical world, um, not exclusively, but particularly, I think all the time about the example of what happens in a concert hall. Not every night, but on the really good nights, you know, strangers come together and we sort of spiritually or like um, energetically hold each other's hands and we all decide to play pretend for a couple hours and be carried away. And there's harmony that comes into that space. Did you find it fascinating as a, as a singer standing with an orchestra? Because an orchestra to me is the most extraordinary organism because you've got a hundred individuals. To an extent, you know, they can express their individuality, but they've all, as it were, got to be traveling in the same direction. And then you've got one person who is kind of helping them and at the same time giving of him or herself. I mean, it's a very complex thing, but when it works, and it works pretty well all the time, it is an astounding organism. It is, I think, one of the great guides and teachers for what we need to do going forward in the world. 
because everybody is there. Every person on that stage has value. Every person on that stage has worked really hard and is making a contribution. And you take one away and the sound is not the same. It's diminished. And they, there's a huge element of trust that has to be present there. You have to trust that everybody else has done their work. You have to trust that everybody else is going to do their best. You have to trust that everybody there is going to stay present and connected and concentrated. And in the really magical moments, when they allow themselves to go into the hands of the leader, of the person who's, who's guiding, and the guide trusts them and gives them autonomy as well. I saw this with Simon Rattle so amazingly with Dans Nation de Faust in Baden-Baden. And they were doing Rosenkavalier, and I think a lot of their attention had been on Rosenkavalier. Um, and they hadn't played Dans Nation for a long time. So our first orchestra rehearsal on stage was their first rehearsal. And it was, I think it was the first time I had sung with the Berlin Phil, I think. Uh, and so I was very nervous and very excited. And I saw them nervous, which of course put me at ease. Uh, and they were kind of sight reading it. And I'll never forget, I mean sight reading it amazingly, but, and it was a little raw, it was a little raucous. And I remember there were, and it was just an energetic thing. I can't tell you exactly what happened, but there were these times that Simon Rattle would take the control and like keep it very, and they just immediately convalesced around that and it became very strict. And then again, I can't tell you what happened, but somehow it was clear he gave the baton to them and they took the reins and then they were leading the music and then it would come. And it was this gorgeous dance in, in this, it hadn't been rehearsed. It was the same thing as Maxime and I on the Winterreise. It was happening in real time, but there was such an element of trust between each other and everybody was allowing themselves to participate, to be led, to contribute, to take the reins. And it's like the egos, I mean, of course there's ego involved in all of that, but everybody was working towards a common goal. And I just thought this is such an extraordinary example of how society can flourish, can flourish. Everybody's, you know, playing a part, has their own um, contribution to it, but they're working towards a common goal. So I'm giving you the world's longest answer, but planting the seeds and talking with these kids in Racelip at Bishop Ramsey School, these amazing kids, it's where I want to be. I want to, you know, if our government, if our civic society, if our schools aren't giving these kids an introduction into something that can save them, and I'm not talking about building professional musicians. Mm. I'm talking about every child having the chance to experience what it is to use their voice. Then I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to do what I can. Can I share a story? Please. So this is tied. It didn't happen in London, although many I could tell you many stories in London with these kids. They're extraordinary. But as part of this project of Eden that we're doing, those kids at Bishop Ramsey spent one day in a workshop, looking at their, their wooded area around their school 
We gave them the question, what if trees could sing? They came back in with their amazing teacher assistant, Mike Roberts, and they all wrote a song thinking about what if trees could sing? And they, and you know, what's happening to trees, how to take care of forests. And they wrote about this. And Mike later compiled it all and wrote our anthem called Seeds of Hope. And so we sing that in every city with Eden with a local children's choir. And it's written in English. And we've been taking this around. And I had the most extraordinary experience in Budapest. I don't know how much the English language is part of the kids' curriculum there. And we had children between nine and probably 13 there. But they had a big song to learn in English. And I'm not sure they really knew who I was, but they'd been told I was famous. So they were kind of excited, you know, somebody famous. Um, and they arrived on the, for the orchestra rehearsal the day of the concert, and they'd been working on it. And, you know, there was some work to do. And I thought, oh, okay, this one's going to be a little uh, by the seat of our pants here. And we worked a lot with them. And there was a boy, nine years old, named Joseph, who had volunteered to sing the final solo, which is, hear our voice, the message we bring, and listen to the song that we sing. And he was, you know, you looked if a, it looked like if a big wind came up, he might be swept away, you know, he was pretty tiny. Um, and I thought, well, this kid's kind of courageous. And so I spend a little bit of time with the soloist on stage, just the two of us before the show, let them hear their voice in the concert hall and all that. And the concert comes and we're singing and I feel he's starting to get a little bit nervous. And I thought, you know, I'm right here. He was right in front of me. I said, if I have to sing, you know, I will. And he was good and he took a big breath and I could tell he was a little shaky, but he sang on the stage of the, of the Mupa the, in Budapest. Which is big. It's big and it's a really educated musical audience, very discerning. And these kids had never been in there before. They'd, I don't even know how many concerts they'd really ever given. And I just thought, my God, he's so courageous. And the other thing I, I tell the choir beforehand is I say, I know you're all excited and nervous, I am too, but tonight we have a job. And your job is to give a gift to the audience. And tonight we're singing about hope. So you have to give hope to the audience. And when we finish, I want you to listen and let's see if we did our job well. Let's see how the audience reacts. So I kind of prime them for the huge ovation that they're obviously <laughs> gonna get, because they're wonderful. He finished his solo and the audience burst into applause. And I was right there and I felt him and he recoiled and he went, <gasps> And he buried his face and he wept. And it was so spontaneous and so overwhelming to him. And I wasn't sure what to do. All the kids around reached out to him, Joseph, <laughs> bravo. It was one of the most loving acts I've ever seen. And I realized this extraordinary kid had never felt the power of his voice before and had probably never been heard before. I found out later um, he didn't have family there. Uh, and I think, I think it was probably the most extraordinary moment he's experienced up to that point in his life. And he's changed. It's a transformative experience. 
And I don't know if he becomes a singer or a professional musician, but the musical experience of that moment will never leave him. And I can't imagine that he won't now have a tool in his back pocket to speak up and use his voice in a way that he probably didn't before. And to hear it not only used, but received and loved. And, and it would have given him the confidence to stand on a stage in front of those thousands of people and sing of all things, you know. And even it would have worked just as a member of the choir, as you mm. were talking about mm. the, the power of being an orchestra, you use your voice and you join with others and you create something extraordinary and exponentially bigger than you can on your own. But to also just use his voice and have it received in such a welcoming way, I want every child on the planet to have that experience once in their life. And we're failing them if we don't give them that. We're failing them if we allow it just to be, put a, a screen in their hand and disconnect and isolate and get the dopamine rush and, you know, and think that that's what life is about. Mm. We're failing them as a society. And so I have the power, I have the means to a certain extent. You know, we've encountered about 500 kids so far with Eden. Uh, we have many more to come, you know, hopefully. Um, that's not every kid on the planet, but it's a start. And uh, I don't wanna, I'm not okay to just sort of go about my life and not invest in that. And I want more people to do it. Do you, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a really wonderful, I mean, the whole sort of Eden concept initiative where, you know, you come up with this concept album, Want of a Better World, word, um, you perform it, you record it, but then again, it, it puts out, you know, it's like a plant, it puts out all sorts of tentacles and, and starts sprouting up, as you've just said, in all sorts of places, like Budapest. But it also links your life for a year, year and a half. You know, you're constantly coming back, reconnecting with your Pomodoro family, who you've done this. I mean, that must be nice because it, it, potentially your career could actually be quite lonely, you know, just sort of flying in, doing stuff, coming out. And then every so often you've got this, you know, th you've got this thing weaving through and, oh, I'm going to reconnect with Eden. I mean, that must be lovely. It's, it is. It's a lovely gift, really. I think for myself and for the, the orchestra, I mean, we set out a very challenging program, uh, sort of unconventional. And... Uh, it requires a lot of all of us. You know, that orchestra, they're going outside their comfort zone beautifully. <laughs> if they're I may they're say quite young, aren't they? So there's that kind of yeah. enthusiasm that you, you know, they're not jaded like, you know, maybe an older band. No, not at all. And they're, they're ready. They're sort of primed. You know, I think we, we learned a lot with the War and Peace Project, which was a very similar initiative and w was woven throughout our lives for about three years, mm. actually. Um, Eden will go over the course of about three years as well. Um, and they're very much a protagonist in the drama of the night. It's not just a typical concert of a couple sets of things that are chronologically linked or thematically linked. It's a, it's a real narrative. And they're very much participants in that. And I love watching them sort of grow into that role where they're also not just orchestra members, but they're real performers. Um, and they're spotlighted as well. Um, and I think as well, 
it's a project with a purpose that speaks to them as well. Uh, they're young, but a lot of them have kids. And so when they see the children come out on stage, you know, they're just right there ready to help amplify that experience for the kids um, because we've seen how extraordinary it is for them. And I think they like, you know, I'm not sure we would want to do 50 concerts back to back, but the fact that we do sort of a grouping of nine or 10 and we have a couple months off and then we meet back, it just allows the music and the, the narrative to, uh, mm, to osmos, that's not really a word, to go through the process of osmosis. Does it change? I mean, has it sort of, has the music carried on living while you've not been with it? You a come thousand back? percent, yeah. always a thousand percent. And w it's very interesting for me, the way this, the way Eden works, um, if you look at it on paper, you might go, mm, what is this? But to experience it as we present it, I have the same reaction as I do with Winterreise that the first minute those dun, dun, bum, pee, dun, bum, the minute it starts, the journey starts, you, you need every note and there's no stopping and one thing just leads to the next and you, it starts to take you. The program starts to take you, the journey, and you are sort of submissive to it in a way. Um, Winterreise for sure is like that. You're participating but Every time I've done it, it pulls me into surprising directions. And my understanding is that happens to a lot of other performers as well. Eden is the same. And so each piece, uh, while it's inevitable in terms of the narrative, it's always surprising. And that's a thrilling thing to experience as a performer where it always feels new and it feels like you're part of something that, that has to come out, that has to be born. That's what Eden feels like. You see, I was talking to um, one of the, the sort of grand dames of, of British opera the other day, and she was still performing. I mean, she's nearly 80. And she was saying what she loves about opera is actually the rehearsals. She said, as soon as the performance starts, she said, it's kind of, it's, it turns into work at that point. You know, you clock in, you do your show, you clock off. She said ah. she just loves the process of developing it and the friendships she, mm. she made during that thing. You know, you, you land in a city, you don't know people, and by, by the end of the rehearsal period, you are best buds. You know, I agree with her. I mean, for me, the process is always the most interesting thing, but I also think, I've come to realize, I think performances are also process. You know, because you have to, you have to just be so present for every, millisecond along the way. Um, the friendship thing is so particular and peculiar in the opera world because it took me a long time to, to sort of figure out the rhythm of an opera friendship, the opera family, because at the beginning it's true, you hit the ground, you meet new people, you're in an unknown city, you're all exploring it together, you're all super excited to be hired and to have the chance to do something. And you're dealing with big theatrical themes and big emotional things and you just bond. And you bond at a really deep level because you're talking about life and death issues oftentimes. And opera is a uh, sort of extreme sport in a way, extreme musical sport, 
but the operatic life is extreme. It's highs and it's lows and you're missing things all the time. You're missing anniversaries and birthdays and all of this and you're on your own and um, so many of us are introverted and extroverted and so it's a, it's a life of extremes. And so you make these huge, very electric relationships right off the bat and they last about six weeks and then you're off to the next thing and you think, we're gonna be best friends and soulmates forever and then you don't see each other or don't can't really stay connected for a long time and after the first couple years of this it was sort of whiplash and I thought I'm not making any friends like real friends because real friends are you meet every Sunday for brunch you know and that's not the way of the world but then you start to meet each other back up and you pick up right where you left off and so I started to trust that rhythm, which is very different from sort of a civilian life, but it's, um, it's, it's profound, actually, some of the, the friendships that you forge. Because, I mean, you, I remember watching your, um, there's amazing performances of Agrippina at the Met. I mean, that was really intense theatre. And you just thought, gosh, that must have been an incredible experience. I mean, a real sort of roller coaster, because it was full on, I mean, it was, you know, full-time stage actors would have you know, being put through their paces doing that, you know, without having to sing. We had so much fun. We had so much fun. And that was a thousand percent an example of trust on the stage. It doesn't always happen, I have to say, but it's when you have the trust of your colleagues and your conductor and your director, I mean, Sir David, McVicker in that. But he's, he's, he's legendary for working people hard. But then again, the results are worth it. Because if you can, if he can trust you and you can trust him, you will go into the galaxies. You know, I really think some of my best performances really have been with him. Didon, Maria Stuarda, Agrippina. I mean, these even um, Sesto, in, I did of his in Chicago, and he wasn't there the whole time, but he came in for a handful of rehearsals, and it was just, he's so psychologically astute, and he loves singers. Mm. He wants us to shine, and he loves the repertoire. He loves it. Because he knows, I mean, he, when he arrives at a production, I mean, he knows every word, I gather. And every note, and he understands it. And he understands the history of it, he understands the musical demands of it the musical language that is amplifying the theatrics of it. And he really, he wants everybody to shine. He wants you to shine as, as Joyce, as the performer, and he wants Agrippina to be fierce. And I think that's what I hear about Panel. You know, I, I never met Jean-Pierre Pono, but I remember the first time I did his Cenerentola, Sonia Frizel was remounting it. And she gave us a very stern lecture on the first day. This was at La Scala. And she said, Jean-Pierre wanted three people on stage. And he wanted you, the singer, and he wanted you, the character, and he wanted you, the prima donna. And he wanted all of them functioning at, at different levels throughout the thing. And I think that's part of the art of opera, you know. Um, and David gets that. And he really knows how to create a safe rehearsal space where we all can go as far as we need to go safe, you know, in, we have the safety of taking risk mm. and pushing ourselves. Because, I mean, Agrippina kind of unleashed some pretty kind of primal emotions. Mm -mm. Yeah, well, I'd never quite 
been able to play such a bad girl before. Mm. I mean, she's not really bad. She's doing what she had to do. Uh, and it just, I had the strangest experience with her because usually I live the character a little bit. I mean, I don't, well, I was gonna say I don't take them home with me, but that's not true. When I'm first learning it, I take the character home uh, and I live it. So like Charlotte is like, I kind of have to go there for a little bit. And then once it's in me, once I've kind of worked through it, I can put it on the stage and, and leave it. But I always, uh, ooh, it goes a little bit into the marrow of my bones. I didn't feel anything with Agrippina. And I could do anything on the stage. And I'd walk off and it was just, not, there was something about it that I was so detached from it, which was, it's the first time that's ever happened to me with a, uh, I'm always attached to the characters that I sing. And this was just, I was so detached and I could go, I could take her anywhere I wanted, both in London and in New York. And I, I don't know, it's the strangest thing. I didn't feel anything with her personally. Uh, but on stage, I was a thousand percent Agrippina. I just loved it. It was so much fun, so much fun. Because, I mean, Baroque opera now is, it's, you know, if everyone said, you know, what is the Joyce Di Donato repertoire, you'd sort of say, well, I think, I think Baroque opera actually is almost her, her kind of centre of gravity these days, and everything, as it were, goes out from that. I mean, you know, if you look back over your career, you know, you did the, the Octavians and the composers and all those sort of travesti and the trouser role type things, but you just think, actually, now, she seems to be in a really good place when it comes to repertoire, you know, Handel, Rossini, modern opera, it, it's Berlioz. Berlioz, of course, yeah. absolutely. I mean, there was, I think, a year and a half period where I debuted Semiramide, Didon, and Agrippina. There was a lot of study involved in, the, in those pieces. Are you a quick study? Do you learn roles reasonably fast? Well, here's the problem. I do, which is a danger because I sometimes don't take the time I need to put it into the voice. You, you vocally. I am most successful when I learn a role slowly, vocally. I learn it very quickly musically. Um, I learn it fairly quickly textually, unless it's French, and that just takes all the extra work. <laughs> I love it. Uh, J'adore le français. Uh, but it's uh, très difficile. Hein? Uh, uh, I love it. I'm making fun of it. Uh, not really. It's just, I really love it. But it takes that extra amount of work. Um, does, it, does it feel, I mean, singing in different language, do, does it actually physically feel different to sing in French than, say, you don't sing much German these days, but say Italian or even in English? I'm singing more German than I used to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I, there's a sort of, a door was creaked open with Winterreise. Mm -hmm, yes. As lovely Yannick predicted, he, when he suggested that, he's like, I hear Mahler. And right. I, think, I think the Winterheiser is the doorway into Mahler. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I was thinking more of German ro operatic roles, but yeah. yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I did, I did mm. Componist, I did yeah, Octavian. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Rofrano. Does it feel different vocally? I suppose it does. It, the main difference vocally is the use of the consonants, I think. I haven't really fleshed this out, but I think it's primarily, the approach to the consonant is very different from Italian very crisp, very dry, um, very concrete. To French, where it needs to be crisp and generally dry and very concrete, 
while being very superfluous and and maleficent and legato and really it should feel but in the meantime the consonants have to be it's just this french is like patting your head in opposite directions and german is just so out there and so um frontal and and strong and fantastic fantastically rewarding because you really get to use them as you do in english mm. which i love um but I think the trick vocally is that the vowels are always in that column, that fantastic ideal place that we aim for. So it's mainly the consonants that I think mm -hmm. shifted about. Mm -hmm. Do you still have a sort of vocal mentor? I mean, do you still have somebody you go to and sing for? I always wonder with singers, you know, there's, quality control isn't quite the right element, but you just need somebody to sort of say, look, you shouldn't be doing it like that. You know, you'll do yourself harm, or have you thought of this, or... I notice you're starting to do that. Or? I mean, we must have that. Mm. You know, I look at the tennis matches, you know, after every point, the top players in the world look at their coaches. The coaches are right there and they're analyzing everything. Mm. Um, here's one of the glorious things about the pandemic for me is I have been able to study again for the first time, really almost for the first time in my life, for the sheer joy of studying voice. Because for about 20 years, it was, I've got to get that role ready. I've got to get this recital ready. And it was always the preparation for something or damage control <laughs> along the way if you run into little pitfalls. Um, and it was always this kind of chasing, I've got to get that, ah, I've got to work on this. Ah. And, and it was, especially with my schedule, it was sort of put, fitting it in where I could. And the pandemic, I've been able to actually just do it for the sheer joy of let me try this, let me play with that. I don't have anything to accomplish right now. I don't have, have to, I don't have anything I have to actually record or put on stage. Let me play with this. And it has been just joyous for me. I've loved it. And it's only been me and my teacher. I, it hasn't been for the public. So I haven't had the pressure of producing which, you know, I, I live for that a little bit too. And I, mm -hmm. um, I've i missed that gift of expressing and having it received by other people. I missed that in the in those couple years. I got just enough of it to keep it, keep the fountain moving a little bit. But I really relished that time for myself, for my satisfaction, for my curiosity, for my growth. Um, just to play with that. It's been, it's been great. So yes, yeah. the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> is yes. <laughs> so for the hours, which you know, you'll be doing in, in December, you, you've got, the, as it were, if we look at the film, the Nicole Kidman role, the, yes. the Virginia Woolf, and then you've got two amazing singers alongside you. Who? <laughs> Who are they? Yeah, oh my gosh. Yes, Renee Fleming is um, the Meryl Streep role of um, uh, Clarissa, and Julianne Moore, role is taken by Kelly O'Hara. And uh, just, I guess about a month ago, we did our photo shoot for it. And we were joking because we took a lot of time to find out when we could all be together. And they photographed it in a way that's like, people are never gonna believe we were in the same space with each other, but we were. And it was already really quite electric um, to be the three of us. And it's such an interesting story because it's, these three women from very different periods, um, very different storylines and moments in their life, and yet so connected. 
and in many ways sharing the same experience. And I, I mean, not to get too, like, whatever, but um, I think it's an extraordinary moment to have this female story being told on the operatic stage. It's a great novel, it was a really historic film, and I think the operatic stage needs this because it's a great moment. I'm particularly thinking of being a US citizen. It's a really important moment that the sanctity of a woman's life and the power of everything that she is be given a spotlight and be celebrated. Opera's always done that. Opera has always celebrated the woman, the prima donna. But uh, I think that the story of this is, I think, super timely. I'm very proud to be part of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've worked a lot with Jake Heggie. I mean, is the, the process of working with actually a real live composer rather than one who's been dead for hundreds of years, I mean, that must be a completely different thing. It? It's, it's extraordinary. And because I did this early on in my training in Houston, um, I did premieres of Mark Adamo, um, Michael Doherty, Todd Macover. Uh, it was such a gift for me to experience that when I was a young artist because it taught me how to look at a score with no tradition, with no recordings, just the only thing you have are the black and white markings on the page and build something three-dimensional out of that. And I took that process and I applied it early on to Rossini and Mozart and Handel. I, it trained me, I would never turn to a recording first if I was singing a new role. Um, Romeo and Juliet, which I just did here, it was me at the piano, and I didn't want to hear it until I had approached it uh, on my own, just from what the composer gave me. And I think it's a really important thing because you realize that they really do mean tenuto accent off after the eighth note. They really do mean that. And um, that's, that's empowering to say, okay, come scritto, as Callas used to always say. Um, but at the same time, especially as I've, you know, gone on in my career and I understand my voice better and I understand even music better than I used to, it's also nice to have the ability to converse and say, could you try this? or could we look at that? Rachel Portman did a gorgeous piece for mm. Eden, and I convinced her to throw in a few sort of Baroque um, uh, uh, appoggiatura-type notes, which of course I love in my musical language. And and she, at first she didn't want it, and then she said, well, sing it for me. And I showed, I said, the reason, if I could lean into this note, this dissonance a little bit more, it's gonna feel more like a question. And so those kind of, um, and then she, there were a few things she wanted to hold on to, and she was absolutely right. And there were a few things I suggested that she said, I understand that, let's try it. And in the end, it, it felt like it added something. And so that kind of um, dialogue and communication, I think it brings something very personal when you're doing a debut. And presumably for the hours, I mean, you know, the, it's actually written for you. I mean, these, these three women and the, 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 the voices are there, I mean. Yeah, and I'm looking at the score now, and Renee has all these A-flats held <laughs> over like eight bars, and I'm like, I can't, I know what that sounds like, and I can't wait to hear it. Um, and he's finished it at the end. There's this really extraordinary trio, and it's, it's very exciting, and it's, um, it was described so well in Great Scott, 
which was another piece written for me, Jake Heggie and the late Terence McNally. And it was about the birth of a new piece, um, literally and figuratively. And it is that there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of responsibility in being the person to premiere something. It's terrifying because until it goes out in front of the public, you don't know how it's gonna be received. But it is, it's the real creative process. Um, and you get one time to give birth to it. One premiere, and that's very exciting. I mean, do you ever regret the fact that, you know, you do one of these operas and then it sort of might never come back or, you know, it might go on somewhere else? I mean, would, would you like to come back and, you know, I'd like to do that again? Or, you know, because it, it must be a huge amount of work for eight performances or six performances. Or and the, they always go so quickly, the shows, the, the learning, process is so intense and then it's just gone in the blink of an eye. You know, I, for the most part, I've been pretty lucky. Um, the new works that I've done, I've at least gotten a chance to do it several times. Mm. And when I'm accepting roles, I always try to make sure there's four or five runs of something in there if I can, because it's only usually until the third or fourth one that you start to really own it. I mean, I, I did Little Women a few times. Mm -hmm. The only, I think the only two new pieces that I've only done once was Resurrection by Todd Macover. And we have a new piece that we're working on. It's a symphonic piece I'm very excited about from the overstory. Very oh, wow. Yeah, very exciting. Um, also sort of tangentially Eden, which is cool. Um, and Great Scott, I would love to do that again. But I watched the video, I was, oh, they showed the video in Dallas and I was there and I had forgotten how huge a role it is. So I'm like, I'd have to like be in really great shape to do that again. But that's a piece I would love to do again because it's so hysterically funny and it is a true love song to the art, opera art form. And that one I would love to do again. But you know, I've been able to do Dead Man Walking a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, and we'll see what happens with the hours. Yeah, because I always think opera or art in general, art that's about art, just has something very, you know, I, I think that's probably why Tosca is, everybody loves Tosca, yes, it's got the great tunes, but it's sort of about an opera singer at the same time. It's a world that we know, and if we're in the theatre, we love it. You know, opera is, it just ignites so much passion in people, and so to be able to see, as you say, the art form that you love, being dissected, laughing at itself, and celebrating what it is, I think there's something really glorious about mm -hmm. that. You talked earlier about, about not listening to recordings when you, when you prepare a piece. I mean, where does recording, both as a listener and as a maker, fit into your life? I mean, recordings, I would have said over the last, I don't know, 10 years, have been very important for getting the, I, I, I hesitate to say the Joyce DiDonato brand out there, but you know, get, getting who you are as an artist out to people who would never probably encounter you necessarily in the flesh. Ah, it's true. I, um, I, I don't rely on recordings to learn pieces. I don't like to do that. I'm, I have a bit of a chameleon um, aspect to me, and if I listen too much to a singer, I will, that will enter into my mm. interpretations, even subconsciously, you know, accidentally, and I don't like that. But presumably um, there must be singers you, you would listen to where there's absolutely no risk of you, you know, I'm not going to Well, suggest. there's some people I'd listen to, I wish their voice would come into me, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, for example, like, I, I listen to, like, Elena Garanchen, I'm like, well, I mean, 
I would take some of that color in my sound. Or I listen to Flicka and I'm like, you know, she comes on the radio, it's immediately recognizable. Yes. If I could sound like Flicka, I would. Um, but at you, least with her, I, I, I always, when I, I sort of people think, you know, whose career does, does Joyce Di Donato's resemble, if you've got, if you say that, I always think Frederica von Stader is there somewhere in the background. You just think, two singers who've kind of managed things really well Aww. and kind of, you know, I could see you, you know, singing, you know, into your dotage, still having, you know, operas written for you, you know, when you're sort of 75 I or whatever. I just saw her a couple of weeks ago. I was in San Francisco and we had an amazing uh, lunch and I said, come over. I have a little terrace where I'm staying. And I said, I'll order in some food. Joyce Dita, not a style. She's like, oh, honey, don't worry. I'll bring something. And she... <laughs> She brings this picnic basket. And I'm like, oh, let me get glasses. She's like, no, I've got them right here. <laughs> oh, well, let me get, no, I brought some lemonade, honey. Well, let me get silverware. No, it's right here. And I tried to wash the dishes after. <laughs> she wouldn't let me wash the dishes. I mean, she's incredible. And we just sat and we gabbed. And, you know, I tease her because we did Dead Man Walking Together in Houston about 400 years ago. And that was supposed to be her retirement. And I was like, flick up. And she even sang a few things out of sort of joking. and. The voice is there, and it's so glorious and warm and fragilely, humanly flicka that you immediately recognize that. And there's still so much joy when she talks about music, when she talks about young singers coming up. She loves it so purely. And that is why she keeps singing. Uh, that is why she shares it as she does. It's why when she sings, it's just open. She wants other people to love it. And always she has been sort of my North Star, mm -hmm. even before I knew her, because it felt so pure. And it didn't ever feel like it was about her. I've never identified with the performers where it feels like it's about them. And I know that that's, that fits a certain niche in the opera loving world that people like that mm. and that's fantastic it's thrilling you come and you want to see x and you get x and you know what you're going to get and it's you hear what you want to hear and it's great but i've never been comfortable with that um she's been the model where the music feels like it's serving a higher purpose it's not serving her but it's about humanity and presumably she must have been important as an American artist because, you know, I mean, she by no means the first, but somehow, you know, she had a huge career in Europe and she, she kind of flew the flag for American singers for I think, I think a lot of people. I think she and Marilyn Horne Absolutely. In, that, in that era. And I would also say my fellow Kansan Samuel Ramey. It feels like they were in that generation that kind of gave American singers credence, credibility. But, but of course, Leontine Price, who... Well, I mean, she... I mean, well, she, she, I mean, <laughs> then she, there's Leontine. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. <laughs> there's that. Uh, I'm just incredible. But I don't know that that was ever part of my thought mm -hmm. process, quite honestly. Um, maybe it's because the door was already open. Yeah. I didn't understand that it needed to be opened at one point. Um, and I think when I started my career, I had such a, um, it was a slow start, but when I, it really started, it was such a clear pathway for me um, with the Rossini and the Mozart. And that had already been established. That was okay. Um, 
for American singers to, to do that. So I think I was just on the other mm. side of, of the groundbreaking, you know, the door was open. Uh, so I suppose it didn't really occur to me much. Now I appreciate what, what it was. But it's that, you know, ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Of course I can sing at La Scala. Of course I can. What do you mean because I'm American? You know, it didn't really connect to me mm, at that point. Mm. We, we talked about, you know, the, the things you do when you're not singing. I mean, if you weren't singing at all, what do you think you would, have you, is, have you ever thought, actually, if, I'm not, if I wasn't a singer, what would I be? Well, I mean, I think I would absolutely have found my way into teaching in one way or another. Not necessarily in a classroom. Although early on, I think I very easily just could have gone into the classroom. High school, choral teacher, taking my kids to state. Uh, I mean, like, a dream of mine would be a wildlife photographer. Ah, oh, I would love it. Or like, you know, a travel reviewer where you have to stay at spas and things. I mean, I could do that. Um, but that would get old. I mean, literally, it would be lovely, but that would get old after a couple times. Um, wildlife photographer I would love to do. I, I love doing photography and I love that I don't have to be good at it. <laughs> I know nothing about it technically. I have a good eye, um, but I, I, I really love that. It's very rewarding for me. And I think one of the reasons is because it doesn't involve this or this which is my day job. It's only visual. And I think it's changed, I think it's amplified the kind of performer I am, that I, observation, quiet, stillness, calm, and staying really present to capture that one moment. Really and and you're on your own. I mean, you can't really go out with a pack of people taking photographs. Yeah. There's nobody at a stage door. <laughs> I love the stage door, but I, I I, I, I've, as I get older, uh, and I think especially after the last two years, I'm good being on my own. Like, I, I, I'm good. And what about, you know, I mean, there was a time when, you know, the idea of, you know, direct messaging an artist or, you know, popping a message on social media. I mean, you just, you know, the idea of sort of sending Leontine Price a message, you know, it's just, you know, <laughs> you know but I mean, is that, is that something that you, you do happily or is it part of the job or, because you, you do engage, you know, a lot with, with people who, you know, clearly support you and admire you and follow you. I mean, is that part of the game, do you think, now? I, I do and I do it very happily. I mean, I think I used to do it a bit more than I do now. Um, it's, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to have the trust of people where they come to you, whether it's through a recording or a performance, to experience something profound. It doesn't always happen, but that's the goal, right? And I, it's kind of, I, I think it's a big responsibility, and I think it's a privilege, and I think it's something that falls into the category of sort of sacred. Because it's transformative, because it hits people at a really deep level and the potential of it to really, again, as simple as it sounds, bring comfort, bring solace, bring connection. These are things I see really missing in the world at large. And I, I think it's, it's something really kind of sacred. I think, um, 
the tricky thing for some people is to understand that we're not friends. Well, that, that's it. You know, sometimes just because line. you can make a direct contact, people assume you're friends. You sometimes read things. You're just thinking, well, you, you can't say that. You don't know this person. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think sometimes enthusiasm can sometimes take it a little bit far. And also I see this with young people. Like there's now this just assumption that they can write you and you're going to write them back and give you feedback on such and such. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm not like <laughs> the storefront isn't open like 24 seven, you know, and it just that's just the generation that they know. You can reach out to anybody and you, you should get an answer right away. And it doesn't always work, work that way. Um, but I, I think it's something very special that has. Um, it's changed the dynamics of of the star quality. I think we're a little bit more accessible and I don't think, you know, we have to be wrapped in fur coats and, and sunglasses all the time anymore. I'm personally grateful for that. That's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work to carry that off. Um, and it must be very lonely, or it must have been very un very lonely for a lot of these, you know, the people who went down that fur coat, dark glasses kind of route. Well, it's a whole other character mm. that you have to maintain. Mm. I tried that for a little while, very unsuccessfully. I was not good at it. And I was like, yeah, you have to be in character when you come out. And no, no, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it as myself. Um, but I think also, you know, people will say, I'm flying in from Mexico to see you, and it's my first time seeing you live. That night, where maybe I didn't know anybody in the audience, I'm thinking about that person going, I want you to have a, a really unforgettable time tonight. And I like that. Mm. I like, um, I mean, sometimes I like, uh, occasionally I've had, I don't cancel very often, I try not to, but if I've had to cancel and I knew somebody was coming, I, you feel awful. It's like, I'm so sorry. Um, but you know, I, I, I like knowing who I'm singing for and I like that people share how it's touched them and the joy it's given them or Thing. You know, we don't ever need to hear your opinions about a costume that, you know, we didn't have any say in or, um, you know, <laughs> sometimes people could be a little bit more graceful about how they interact with us. Um, and that's fine. They're excited. They're usually nervous. Um, Are you thick skinned? I mean, do, do, does it hurt or do you let it just bounce off you? I, I've had to learn that. I've had to learn it. Uh, I can get annoyed. <laughs> I can get a little annoyed. And I now will sort of tell people, <laughs> like, you know, at the stage door, for example, if I'm talking to like a young singer and there's somebody right here eavesdropping and trying to come into the conversation, I'll say, I'll be with you in a moment. Like, this is not your time. I always will find time for you, but this is for this, this person, you know? So it's things like that that I, I get a little bit impatient with. Um, I mean, I've read a lot of things about myself and sometimes it's hurtful and there's truth in it. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You didn't have to write it for the whole world to see, but you're right, that wasn't a good show or whatever. Um, but I think I can now discern um, what the motive is behind it. And I'm pretty accurate about that now. And that helps a lot with 
mm. whether I should mm. take it personally. What, or not. What, what annoys you more that if you've given a, a performance you, you, you knew you weren't at your best and it gets a spectacular review, or you give a performance that you knew was spectacular and it gets a sort of subpar review? I mean, which is the more annoying? Well, that well, maybe one is it more annoying. <laughs> 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 because you can say, well, I wasn't at my best, but they enjoyed it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it's, but this is the weird thing, and I don't think I'm the only singer that will say this, is sometimes we just don't know. That we think we were totally absent in a show and phoned it in and people were like, that was amazing. You're like, what? And other times we think we gave everything and it was just like, and, uh. and so I, I know from myself sometimes I miss the mark in, in objectively discerning how it went. Um, but that's not my job. You know, I mean, I have to evaluate how I sing, but people's, they get to decide whether it was a success mm. or not. And we, it sort of takes us back to the sort of vocal mentor. I mean, do you have somebody you, you absolutely implicitly trust and they say, Joyce, you know, you could have done better or, you know, I think that bit needs a bit of attention. I mean, is that your, your vocal coach? I do. I have a few, mm -hmm. not many, but I have a few that I really trust. And then I have a few that I know are just that, you are great. Um, mm. I know I wasn't, or I know that I'm missing some things. This is the funny thing too, is that oftentimes if your coach or your teacher can't be there, you can identify somebody in the room in an opera house or a concert hall that you can trust and you need their ears. But the longer, like, I don't know how to say this, like discreetly or like, um, modestly, but I sort of arrive as Joyce Dietonato now and I can tell people don't want to give me notes. <laughs> Especially if it's somebody young on the staff or something. And I know there are notes to be given. I know there are notes to be given. Um, and so I, I have to make sure that I go and say, please tell me like what you hear. And I have a very thick skin about that. I don't take it personally. I want the information, you know. Um, I, because if I have the information, and I know that it's really objectively um, concrete, I can do my best to correct it or to amplify it. Um, I now have such a good relationship with Daniel Zale, our recording engineer and producer here, um, as we were doing More de Cleopatra, which is a beast of mm. a piece. And it was him and our French coach on the side as well. And Danielle would come on and go, Joyce, that note was sharp. And I could hear in the background, you can't tell her that. You have to, and he goes, no, 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 I know Joyce. She wants the information. And it's true. And it can feel a little bit abrupt, but you know, if I was a tennis player, they'd be like, no, you're overturning your wrist. Or you're only human, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's a really valuable skill for singers and musicians to learn is to discern what that, where that feedback is coming from. But if you're getting criticism, don't take it personally, just correct it as best you can. It's gonna make the performance better. Mm. That's mm. what I want. Mm. I mean, last question. What, um, I mean, do you have sort of career, are there sort of things you want to do or, or roles you still, you'd still like to have a crack at or things you want to get under your belt or, or do you take things at a slightly shorter cycle? I don't know. I was just saying this actually earlier that sometimes I'll get asked like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I never answer that question because without fail, I would always undershoot <laughs> like where I am or not be able to predict like what my life is like. Um, so I'm sort of along for the ride in that regard. I mean, I would like 
to save the world. <laughs> I would like every child on the planet to have exposure to arts education, arts experience. And I'm finding that my ambitions are going more in that direction rather than running I, an opera house. Never say never. <laughs> I have <laughs> no desire for that at all. That requires a special set of skills that not only do I not possess, but I don't think I want you to possess. You don't want to get them. <laughs> I mean, that is a very special yeah, calling. Yeah. And we need amazing people in those roles, uh, but I don't think that's me. I never say never, I, you never know. Um, but I think it's more about how do I give more people the chance to experience what I've experienced. And not at a professional level, but just that connection to music where, you know, when I was 13, I would sit at my piano and I would play my sheet music or the raindrop prelude of Chopin. I couldn't play many of his other music, but I could play that one really well. And it just felt like it was the only thing that understood me. And I didn't know anything about Chopin, but I thought, he gets me. He knows my sorrow as a 13-year-old. He knows my sorrow. I'm not alone in the world. And I didn't have many people I could talk to when I was growing up, but I could talk through the piano. And then when I joined the choir in high school, there were other people that I was literally harmonizing with, and they got me. I wasn't alone in the world. And very slowly, I was being given permission to share something of myself with the world. It took me a long time to give myself permission to do that. But I was being given it from the choir teacher and from the people I was singing with. And that, oh, it's just gonna sound so weird. That feels like love to me. And I didn't, mm, I think, that's been one of the prime teachers of where I've learned what love is and how to receive it and how to express it. And I just think it's criminal that we're not giving every kid that opportunity. I've done, we've talked about this before, but I've done some work um, with men that are incarcerated and you know, you can never go back in time and say, oh, if that had happened, then this wouldn't have happened. But I do know in speaking with them, had they been given the tools to have access to learning instruments and expressing themselves through music and finding their voice through music and connecting with other people through music. I mean, you can never say for sure, but the majority of them know at a deep level that their life would look different. And I believe that. I think our world would look different if that part of humanity was celebrated and lifted up and not dismissed as, oh, gonna do your music, go practice piano. You know, I mean, it's disregarded. And I just think it's criminal. 
And I'm going to sing Carmen next year for the first time. That'll be fun. I was, yes. Well, let's finish talking about Carmen. I mean, I only discovered it last night when I was flicking through the Strasbourg Philharmonic things for next year, and I thought, <gasps> what? What? And, and, and I looked what? down the cast, and I thought, well, this is an Alain Lanstrand cast. This is spectacular. <laughs> this is an Arato recording. And a John Nelson cast. And a John Nelson yeah. cast. Yeah. It's like a coming together, actually, of all the, all the kind of Berlioz casts all scooped into one oh, thing with a few, a few cherries on the top. It's crazy. And I think it's happening because um, for a long time I said, we'll see, never say never. I said, I'll never do Carmen. Uh, I don't need to do Carmen. And I remember Judy Forrest, we were, she was singing uh, my mother in Cendrillon in Santa Fe. And we were talking about Carmen backstage. So this was, I don't know, 10 11, 12, 14 years ago, maybe. And she was like, oh, Carmen, it's the worst. She said, Micaela comes on and she sings her off and she's the star of the show. And Escamillo comes in, adore, adore, he's the star of the show. And if Don Jose can phonate the high C, he's the star of the show. And Carmen, you come in and you sing all night and you give the performance of your life and people will say, she's not a real Carmen. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I don't know. And you know, this idea came up, and I think it's my we probably came because of the pandemic, where it's like, oh, pff, I don't care anymore. I'll do whatever I want. Like, I've ticked so many boxes, and I've loved it. And, you know, I want to see what she's like. I have no idea what she's like. I have no idea what she's like yet, and I'm super excited. And I think the only reason I've really said yes is because it's this group of people. And I think it's going to be something unique and fantastic. And uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be a gr crazy, amazing journey. And you live in the right country for it, of course, now. Ole. Yeah. <laughs> well, I should be there. Viva España. <laughs> Joyce, thank you so much. As always, that was terrific. Thanks, James. Thank you, Medici TV. <laughs> a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed getting to know Joyce Di Donato. Before we leave you, let's play it by ear for a moment. We've prepared a survey on sounds and noises for all our artists to answer off the cuff. Here are Joyce's responses. Are you more comfortable surrounded by noise or silence? <gasps> Depends on the day, but at the end of the day, silence. If you could choose the sound of your doorbell, what would it be? But if I, a doorbell? I would want it to be a bird. Or my partner going, mi amor. <laughs> That's what I want my doorbell to be. Mi amor. <laughs> and what's the sound you wake up to? Well, usually my alarm. But recently, it's birds. If your life was a movie, what would your theme song be? What a wonderful world. What to you is the most relaxing sound? Chant. If I'm going to put on music and I want a relaxing sound, I'll do like Gregorian chant or the wind or birds, nature sounds. <laughs> Don't make me pick. <laughs> What's the most ir irritating sound? Oh, video games. <laughs> what sound reminds you most of home? Church bells. What's the first sound you remember hearing? I can't, I can't. I can't quite go back that far, uh, but I'm sure it was music related because my house was full of music. Live piano, classical music on the radio, rock sounds downstairs. So I'm sure it had, was music related. 
What sound makes you think immediately of a happy memory? I think, I mean, I'll go back to like running water, like river, because we used to spend summers in Colorado and hiking and wading in the river. It brings up a lot of memories. I can smell it. I know where I am. I feel the sun. What is for you the most musical sound not made by an instrument? Yeah, and that's nature. It's, the, it's uh, bird sounds, animal sounds. Do you use other objects to make music aside from your own instrument, your voice? Yeah, I'm always, you know, I've always got the rhythm going somewhere. Thanks for listening to this episode of Music Makers, produced by Medici TV with the generous support of Madame Aline Foriel d'Estuzé. Log on to Medici TV for exclusive video versions of the podcast, early access to new episodes and on-demand videos of all our special guests.